All right, we'll take a Bible this morning, find the Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you have access notes online through our website or our Facebook page, you may want to have those handy. John 12 is our passage, and as we're working our way through the Gospel of John, we have worked our way into the last week that Jesus spent on the earth, the last week of his life. And so uh, last week I shared a timeline with you that just sort of runs through some of the major events, the major happenings in the last week that Jesus was on the earth. And I'll put that up again. On Friday, Jesus arrived in Bethany. He raised Lazarus from the dead. On Saturday, he had dinner with Lazarus and family and others. So it was a Sabbath day, so more than likely they waited till sundown, and then they had people come over. They had a big dinner. On Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. We look back on this event as the triumphal entry. This morning is Palm Sunday, so this is a, a fitting passage that we've come to this morning. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus is in the temple. He, he clears the temple. He teaches in the temple. There's arguments about uh, various topics between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He leaves and during this time window, he leaves the city and he delivers what we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, some people call it an end times discourse. Thursday was Passover dinner, arrest, trials. Friday was crucifixion and burial. So we have now come to the very, very end of Jesus' life. And our story takes place on Jesus' last Sunday. It's a story you'll find in all four Gospels. All four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' triumphal entry on Sunday. And just to pull back the curtain a little bit and let you know about some of my sermon prep and sermon planning, when I mapped out our walk through the Gospel of John months and months ago, I tried to very intentionally schedule this Sunday, Palm Sunday, as the Sunday that we would look at Palm Sunday in the Gospel of John. And I've also planned it so that next year, 2021, Easter Sunday, will come to the resurrection in the Gospel of John. We're not going to go straight through John between now and then. We're going to break it up a little bit. Uh, but that gives you an idea of where we're headed. It's going to be about a year that we're working through the rest of the Gospel of John, building up to the resurrection next year on Easter. And hopefully next year on Easter we are all together and we are all in one room and that will be exciting to celebrate. So all the Gospels, all four Gospels tell this story. I want to say a word about the crowd. We're going to read about a crowd here in just a moment, John chapter 12. The crowd that welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem was made up of people who wanted to see Jesus and Lazarus. They had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and they wanted to see these men as well as pilgrims who were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. So if you read ancient historians, ancient sources, they talk about how many Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Some say the city would swell by hundreds of thousands of people. So it was already a significant size city in the ancient world. And then you had literally hundreds of thousands of people coming to town to celebrate the Passover. It was really a week-long celebration, and so they would start to trickle in a week early. And then by the end of the week, there was a massive, massive amount of people there in Jerusalem. We'll read in just a moment that many of these people who had come to celebrate the Passover heard. People were talking. Word was spreading that just one village over in Bethany, Jesus of Nazareth, had raised a man named Lazarus 
from the dead. And it's not like they mistakenly thought he was dead and Jesus came back and just sort of revived him. This man was dead, four days buried in the grave, and Jesus had brought him back to life. This was causing excitement. This was causing a a buzz in the air, and all of these people wanted to see Jesus. That brings us to the big idea of our passage. It's very simple. The big idea is that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of kings. Everything that we're about to read in John 12 revolves around the idea that Jesus is the king. And I do want to acknowledge that this is not the the first time. It's not the first time that a crowd of people wanted to make Jesus their king. In fact, if you go back, you can look at John 6:15. Jesus had fed a multitude of people with a small boy's lunch, just a few loaves and a few fish. And people were so excited back in John 6 that they came and John says they were going to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Jesus does something strange in response to that. He just walks away and he hides himself and he leaves the crowds. And when they finally catch up with him, he delivers one of his hardest, most challenging, most in-your-face sermons And many of them end up walking away. Those people who wanted to make Jesus king by force end up walking away from Jesus. In this passage, Jesus doesn't do anything to pull back. He doesn't do anything to to tamp down the excitement of the crowd. In fact, everything that we're about to read, Jesus is very intentional about entering Jerusalem as king. So if you have your Bible out, let's read our text, and then we're going to pray. John 12 beginning in verse 12. The Word of God says this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, or they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that They heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That's the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Bible. It is living, it is active, it is true. It is a light to our feet and a lamp for our path. Father, we pray this morning that your spirit would use the inspired word of God to pierce our hearts, to see truth about Jesus, and to make us into the kind of people that you would have us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every four years in the United States of America, we have something called a presidential 
inauguration. It takes place in January. In recent history, it's always been in Washington, D.C., and in recent history, it's been here on the west side of the U.S. Capitol facing the National Mall. No doubt many of you have visited Washington, D.C. and been to this place. Some of you maybe even have been to a presidential inauguration at some point in time. Uh, There are a few events that take place at the inauguration itself. There is a speech delivered by the incoming president. Uh, He stands in the middle of this massive crowd of people gathered at the Capitol. Usually there are some prayers, maybe some poems or some music of some sort. And then typically, tradition says, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court delivers the oath of office. It doesn't have to be the Chief Justice, but typically that's who it is, delivers the oath of office to the incoming president. There are other events that surround the the inauguration. There's a luncheon that takes place, and uh, none of us are important enough to be invited to such a luncheon, but it's there, and they eat, and they hobnob with important folks. There's a big parade, and maybe you remember seeing the president and family and friends sitting in a big white box as the parade goes by uh, in front of them. There's a prayer service. There are inaugural balls. There's all sorts of things that take place at a presidential inauguration. Now, it's not like I have a long history with presidential inaugurations. By my count, I've been alive on the earth for eight of them. But hands down, I have an all-time favorite moment from presidential inaugurations, and it was President Trump's inauguration, and it didn't have anything to do with Trump. It had everything to do with W. George W. Bush. And maybe you remember this scene at the inauguration. It started to rain. They passed out rain ponchos. Most people unpacked them relatively easily and slipped them on. Our favorite, beloved George W. could not figure it out. Uh, He tried it this way, that way. He couldn't get it on his head. He wrestled with it uh, for a good couple of minutes. And it it was a funny scene. Dick Cheney is sitting right behind him in a cowboy hat. I didn't remember the cowboy hat until I looked at the pictures this week. But he was right there with a cowboy hat, had a crooked grin on his face. And you could just see the expression on his face. He's trying not to laugh. And you can see the expression on his face. He's not all that surprised at what is unfolding or not unfolding right in front of him. And then not in these photos, but directly to W's left is Laura Bush, his wife. And I watched the video this week. She never looks over. She just looks straight ahead the whole time. She doesn't acknowledge that her husband is wrestling with a rain slicker. She's just all focus, and she pretends that nothing is going on. And I love this moment because it's kind of like laughing in church. When you're in church and there's a big group of people in the room, you know you're not supposed to laugh, and something very small becomes very funny, and you can't stop laughing. And this is a very serious, very weighty, very important historical moment, and there you've got a former president wrestling with a rain slicker behind the incoming president. It was just a, a moment of lighthearted comic relief in a very important situation. I don't know if as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, if there were any moments of lighthearted comic relief. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't really include any of those moments in their story. Here's what I do know. Jesus riding this donkey into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday was sort of like an impromptu inauguration, right? An impromptu 
inauguration. For all the people who were there, they didn't plan this. Uh, They didn't get a stage ready or a platform or anything like that. It was all very impromptu, laying their cloaks down, laying the palm branches down. Uh, They jump in and they participate. The religious establishment and the political establishment in Jerusalem was furious that Jesus was riding this cult into Jerusalem and that people were acknowledging him as king. They were absolutely outraged. They understood the political and religious implications of what Jesus was doing. And what I want you to understand is behind all of that, Jesus is orchestrating all of it. John doesn't tell us the part about Jesus sending the disciples in to find this animal and to bring it out to him. But when you read horizontally through the the Gospels, you understand Jesus has planned and prepared every detail of this, every step along the way. He's pulling the strings and he's riding into this city claiming to be a king. That may not be obviously apparent to us this morning as we read the story 2,000 years later through American eyes, but in the things that I'm going to show you this morning, I hope you understand Jesus is intentionally claiming to be the king of Israel. And so here's our question this morning. What does John want us to know about Jesus, the king? What is John, in telling us this story, what is he teaching us about Jesus the king? The first thing he's teaching us is this, Jesus the king came to fulfill prophecy. He came to fulfill prophecy. And in this short passage, there are at least four major messianic prophecies that come to fulfillment or fruition. I just want to walk through those quickly with you. The first one is from Genesis 49. You can go back and look at Genesis 49, a man named Jacob is on his deathbed and he's blessing his 12 sons and he just goes right through his sons and he comes to his fourth born son Judah and he gives him a remarkable blessing longer than any of the others and he says to Judah you will be a lion who will have a scepter and a kingdom and you will tie the colt of a donkey to the vine and in that day and time when Jacob said it They didn't understand all the pieces of that. But in hindsight, we look back and we say, wait a minute. Jesus is from the line of Judah, ancestor of Jacob through Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Bible says he's going to rule the nations with a scepter or a rod of iron. And here he is on Palm Sunday riding a donkey into Jerusalem. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy. Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm about the king of Israel. Originally, it's probably about David, David being Israel's great king. But as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the crowd starts singing. So at a presidential inauguration, the crowd might burst out in a USA chant, USA, USA, and it would be familiar to everyone. You wouldn't sit there and say, why are they chanting USA? You would know. We're proud of our country. This is what we do. They start singing. Psalm 118, save us we pray, O Lord, O Lord we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They start singing it. And you understand in that moment, this is the son of David, the one who's come to sit on the throne. We originally thought that this psalm was talking about David, but now we understand it's actually talking about Jesus. I've listed for you 1 Kings chapter 1. 
You can go back and read 1 Kings 1. David is on his deathbed. He's already named Solomon his successor, but Solomon's half-brother, Adonijah, sees an opportunity and he tries to move in and steal the throne from his brother. And Nathan and Bathsheba meet with David and David says, this is what we're going to do. He's, he's dying, he's old. David says, take my mule, put Solomon on the mule, and ride him out of the city and into the city and around through the streets of Jerusalem. And so they do it. Solomon gets on the mule and he rides out and he rides in and he's riding around the streets. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 1 there is joy and there's rejoicing and the people are shouting, long live King Solomon. And you look at this situation and you say, here's Jesus riding an animal into Jerusalem just like Solomon the king did. Jesus is claiming to be the king. One last prophecy, Zechariah 9. The book of Zechariah is a strange book. It contains a remarkable number of messianic prophecies. One of them is found in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, if you go back and read it, verse 9 at 10, it says, Israel's king will come in humility. He will bring salvation. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will ride a donkey He will rule from sea to sea, and all of it, Zechariah says, will be established by the blood of the covenant. And again, in hindsight, as Zechariah spoke that prophecy to the exiles who had come back to Jerusalem, they didn't understand all the pieces. But as you look at that prophecy through a a messianic lens, through the lens of Palm Sunday, you say, what a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy in this moment. I would remind you that Jesus is not done fulfilling prophecy. He fulfilled many on Palm Sunday. More are still to come, one of which is Revelation 19, 11 to 16. When Jesus returns, it will not be on a donkey, and it will not be to proclaim peace. It will be on a horse, and it will be to declare war on his enemies. He fulfills prophecy on Palm Sunday, a remarkable number in this short episode, and there is more to come. So number one, the king is fulfilling prophecy. Secondly, the king came to save his people, came to save his people. In Psalm 118, the wording is, save us, we pray, O Lord. If you go back and read it, it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. If you read it in the Gospel of John, what the people say in verse 13 is, Hosanna. They don't quote, save us, we pray, O Lord. They say, Hosanna. Here's what I need you to understand. Hosanna is kind of like a mashup word. It's a compound word. And what it literally means is, save us. It became a title. And it just sort of entered the vocabulary between the book of Psalms and Palm Sunday. And the people would say, Hosanna. And it was sort of like a a spontaneous prayer, and it was also sort of like a title. We're asking that God would save us, and we're praying that he would send Hosanna. It's kind of like the word y'all in West Texas. We rarely say you guys or you people or you all. We just mash it together and say y'all. We take a couple of words and we mash them into a new word. That's what they've done with the word Hosanna. Here comes Jesus riding this donkey, And the people are shouting out, Hosanna, save us. What did they want to be saved from? Clearly, they want Jesus to save them. They're shouting it out. They're quoting 
Scripture from the book of Psalms, save us, save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, what was it that they wanted Jesus to save them from? I imagine for many in the crowd, they wanted to be saved from the Romans. They wanted Jesus to save them from Roman domination, and they wanted Jesus to give them their nation back. And they're excited. Here's a man who can feed multitudes of people with a small lunch. Here's a man who can take people who are dead and buried four days in the grave and bring them back to life. This is the kind of guy we need on our side if we're going to get rid of the Romans. This is the kind of man who could save us. What do people today want Jesus to save them from? Maybe today, in parts of the country, the most immediate pressing need would be a virus. Save me from a virus. Save me from a a sickness, from an illness. Maybe for some of us already and for some of us in days to come, it's going to be economic pain. Jesus, save us from that experience. Maybe for some in certain parts of the world, it's persecution. Lord, save us from this experience of persecution. Maybe for for some it would be a lack of education or opportunity or perceived inequality or some sort of injustice, and you would cry out and you would say, Jesus, save me, save me. The real question is not what did these Jewish people want Jesus to save them from, and the real question isn't what do we want Jesus to save us from. The real question is what did Jesus come to save us from? regardless of our expectations. Because one of the things you see through the Gospels is Jesus refuses to conform to the expectations of people. Even when they're claiming to be on his side, even when they're throwing him a parade, he refuses to conform to others' expectations. So the question is, what did he come to save us from? And the answer is ourselves, from our sin. He came to save us from our sins. The greatest danger that you and I face is not out there somewhere. It's not like you can point a finger to it and say, it's the Romans, it's a virus, it's a pay cut, or it's any external thing. It's us. It's our own depravity. It's our own sinfulness. It's our own wickedness. It's the corruption that lives inside of all of us. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Ultimately, you could say he came to save us from the wrath of God. As sinners, what we deserve is God's wrath and his anger and judgment now and for eternity. And Jesus came to save us from that. How? Did he come and pass a piece of legislation? Then he saves us? Did he come and wave a wand and say the magic words, and then he saves us? No. Number three, Jesus the King came to die for sinners. He came to die for sinners. That's how he would save his people. He would die for them. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the Passover feast, 
Every year, these Jewish pilgrims filed into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in celebrating the Passover, one of the things that they were doing is celebrating all that God had done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. Last night, I was flipping through the channels. Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments was on TV. I spent about 30 minutes watching before I fell asleep. I always fall asleep in that movie, but I did make it about 30 minutes. And I watched the part where Moses brought them out of Egypt, this this horde led out of Egypt, Moses at the head. And Moses, Charlton Heston says, the Lord has done this for you with a strong hand, a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm. Every year in the Passover, the people looked back and said, God, you brought us out and you saved us. Every year, they also confessed their sin. They continued to take those lambs year after year, family by family, and they would slaughter those lambs and they would smear the blood on the doorpost. And they're confessing as they celebrate the Passover, they're confessing to the Lord, we are sinful people and the only way that we can be saved, the only way that death can pass over is if there is a death in our place. If a substitute dies, if the sacrifice is killed. That's why Jesus came die. Look at the gospel of Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Even the son of man came not to be served. He is the king, but he didn't come in the incarnation so that we could serve him. This is the glory of the gospel. He came to serve us. The king came to serve us. And how would he do that? He would give his life as a ransom for many. He would die for us. It's why when you read through the Gospel of Luke, about halfway through, Luke tells us this interesting detail. When these days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go. That's where he would die, at the Passover. That's why he came. That's why he was born. That's why the first Christmas happened and the shepherds were invited and the angels sang. That's the whole point that he would come to save us by dying for us. Look, whatever you believe about Jesus of Nazareth, what I don't think is an option is to call him simply a fool or a crazy man. There were times in Jesus' life where he knew that people wanted to kill him, and he stepped back. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right place. For months, if not years, Jewish authorities in Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem, even in his hometown of Nazareth, had wanted to put Jesus to death. And in those moments, many times what Jesus did is he just walked away. Many times what Jesus did is he simply refused to argue. He just ended the conversation. Sometimes he physically removed himself as far as Galilee. He went to a rural, backwoods, secluded area, and he just left. It wasn't the time. It wasn't the place. But now it's the time. And now it's the place. He came to save his people, fulfilling prophecy, and he's going to do that by dying. And so he orchestrates this whole scenario And he rides into Jerusalem claiming to be the king. He knows the men in Jerusalem want him dead. He knows they've already decided Jesus needs to die and Lazarus needs to die or the whole thing is going to spin out of control. He doesn't back away. Here he's not silent. 
during this last week, he intentionally orchestrates all of the details of this last week so that he's claiming to be the king. If you want to think about it this way, you can think about it like this. He is intentionally pushing all the buttons of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's doing and saying the things he knows will infuriate them and lead to his death. It's why he came. So he came to fulfill prophecy. He came to save us by dying for us. And lastly, fourth, the king came to create worshipers. He came to create worshipers. Just look at the text again. Verse 13, they take branches of palm trees and they go out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, they continued to bear witness. They continued to talk about how great Jesus is and and how great his power is. But look down at verse 19. John's postlude, he says, The Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And you understand the tone in their voice when they said it. Exasperation, discouragement, rage, anger, a resolve to do something about this Jesus problem. They're not excited that, quote-unquote, the world has gone after Jesus. They're grumbling about the fact that the world has gone after Jesus. People still grumble about Jesus today. You hear it. You see it. People grumble about the things that Jesus taught. They grumble about the things Jesus said about hell. They grumble about the things Jesus said about marriage and sexuality. They grumble about the things Jesus had to say about salvation. They grumble about the things Jesus had to say about hypocrisy and sin and the danger of sin in our lives. They grumble about the exclusivity that Jesus claimed to be. I I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People grumble about that. The Pharisees were grumbling You need to understand and I need to understand that in the end there will be no grumbling. Every grumbling mouth will be silenced. All of them. There will be no grumbling in heaven. There will be only worship. That's why Jesus came. In some of the gospel accounts of this event and events surrounding it. The children are crying out after Jesus in the temple. They're calling him Hosanna and the Pharisees are saying, you need to tell those children to be quiet. And Jesus says, God has ordained this praise. He's ordained this worship. And if they would be quiet, the rocks would cry out. I'm here to create worshipers. This is not new in the Gospel of John. This is the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus said the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in the end, there will be no more grumbling. There will be worship. And I want to end by reading a scripture from the book of Revelation. And I want you to notice as we read through this scripture, all of the parallels between what will happen in the end And what was happening as a preview on the very first Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. The book of Revelation says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Remember what the Pharisees said? The world has gone after him. They're all welcoming him. Well, John says in the end it's going to be that way. A great multitude that no one can number. Every nation, 
all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne. We're talking about a king. They're standing before the throne and before the lamb. We just talked about the Passover. Jesus is the lamb, the lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world. They're standing before the throne and before the lamb. They're clothed in white robes. And what's in their hand? Palm branches. Why would John include that detail? He's making a connection between Palm Sunday and what's going to happen in the end. Jesus came to create worshipers, and he's telling you in the end it happens. you got a faint glimpse, a faint preview of it in John 12, but this is the culmination. They are crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation. That's Hosanna. Save us. Save us. Save us. And this multitude, saved by the blood of the Lamb, is shouting out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And John goes on and says this, all the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Jesus is the king. And he came to fulfill prophecy He came to save his people. He did that by dying for them. And the end goal, the end purpose of all of it is that he would create a multitude of people who worship him forever. The king wants you and me to worship. Let's pray.